1: Our world today is full of algorithms and metrics designed to help us keep up, to keep track, to keep going. New devices such as the smartwatch now make it possible to quantify and standardize every conceivable human activity, from keeping track of personal bests at the gym to getting a good night's sleep, all from the comfort of our homes. But What do these measurements actually tell us about ourselves? What happens when the data sets for these functions are subjective? And how do we know whether we're measuring ourselves accurately? In her debut collection of essays, nonfiction writer Rachel Z. Arndt explores the answers to these questions, interrogating the methods through which we measure our lives in the modern world. Through a series of 19 research personal essays, Arndt speaks from her own experiences managing her narcolepsy, participating in judo tournaments, analyzing the rituals of online dating, and more, in order to answer the question of what can be measured, or, more accurately, what cannot. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Rachel Z. Arndt to hear more about Beyond Measure, available now from Sarah Van Books. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so we're here to talk about your debut collection of essays, uh, Beyond Measure. And uh, so I guess my first question is, could you tell us a little bit about the impetus for writing this collection? Um, which essay did you begin with? And what are some of the questions driving this line of inquiry?
0: Yeah. So, um, I didn't at first set out to write about measurement, um, explicitly just sort of happened that I realized I had been writing a lot of essays that could sort of be grouped together under that theme. And I think, I think what I was concerned with when I was writing the book and what I'm still concerned with is, um, notions of subjectivity and objectivity and how we sort of navigate the, the differences between the two and, um, looking at it in terms of measurement, measurement really encourages us to objectify the world, to understand our experiences in terms of the number of steps we take every day or anything else that we're measuring with our phones, things like that. And so I was interested in how we're turning what used to be just plain subjective experience into something that at least feels or sounds on the surface to be objective. Um, And so I'm trying to remember which essay I started with. I think probably the earliest one that I wrote in the book is the first one, "Sleep," um, and I, I wrote that when I was—I thought I was going to be writing more about sleep—and but I was interested in it for the same reasons that I'm interested in everything else in the book, because sleep is a great example of of something that seems like we can objectify it. Seems like we can make it objective by measuring how long we sleep. Um, when we go in and out of certain sleep phases, things like that. But yet in the end, it's still very personal and very subjective because we wake up feeling a certain way that we can't quite put into numbers. And we may get eight hours of sleep one night and eight another night, but in the morning feel completely different. So I was interested in, in in how our attempts to capture the world objectively affect how we're taking it in subjectively, nevertheless.
1: So I'm glad that you brought up um, the first essay in the collection, "Sleep," because um, so I noticed that several of the essays, including "Sleep," "Awake," "Briefly," and a couple of others, um, describe your experiences living with narcolepsy. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that Um, for those who may not know what is narcolepsy and how is the condition measured.
0: Yeah, so it's um, a condition of basic, uh, basically the way it presents itself is um, people with narcolepsy tend to be tired a lot of the time. Some people sleep more than is normal or, you know, more than the standard eight hours. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just characterized essentially by, by being really tired. And, um, it's, it's diagnosed through, um, through sleep tests. So they, the sleep doctor basically measures your brain waves and your breathing and other things throughout the night. And then the day after has you take a series of naps, um, one nap every two hours and, um, looking at those results, they can figure out how fast you fall asleep and what sleep phases you go into. And if you go into certain sleep phases at certain times, they can detect that that's not normal and that that's a sign of something like narcolepsy. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, I was I was driven to write about it um, because I was trying to understand, um, for example, in sleep, what it meant to have a diagnosis of something wrong with the way I sleep and whether getting a diagnosis would make it feel sort of more manageable because it's more objective, whether it would bring any certainty to it. Um, and I found that that sleep in general is just a, a really great vehicle for examining measurement and objectivity and these sorts of things because, because it is so personal, but yet, you know, we hear you're, you're supposed to sleep eight hours every night. That sort of applies to everyone supposedly, but yet sleep is very personal in the way we each feel after we sleep the way we the way we sleep. It's it's very personal, and I think, um, yeah, I think those differences are really interesting. And then another thing that sort of added to my interest in sleep now is that we have all these devices that can supposedly measure the way we sleep. Our phones can even do it. And so, what does it mean that we have these tools suddenly that you suggest um, exist in doctors'
1: offices? So I'm really interested in what you said about how sleep is very personal and very individualized. Um, so in one of the essays, you actually go to a narcolepsy network conference. Um, could you speak a little bit to that and the kinds of people that you met and what you observed there?
0: Yeah, so going to that conference was really interesting. I I had no idea what to expect um, besides the standard conference stuff of name tags and, and trying to talk to strangers, which can be tough. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I think what I was struck with mostly when I was there is that I couldn't tell that there was anything, you know, quote, wrong with anyone there, even though probably the majority of people I met, um, had narcolepsy or something similar, but it was really hard to tell from the outside that anything was going on with these people. It was only when I started talking to them about how they were actually feeling that, that signs would reveal themselves. Um, so it was just, it was It was funny to be in this space that's designated for a certain type of people, but then there'd be really no way of being able to tell that aside from um, just being told it outright. So I I thought that was interesting, that there was almost no way from the outside to categorize this group of people that was there specifically because they all fit roughly into a specific category.
1: Um, So in the collection, there are also several essays describing um, your participation in various competitions, such as judo tournaments, uh, bike races, um, and then just gym workout culture in general. Um, So I'm curious, what do you think drives human beings to compete? And then how does one measure individual athletic progress?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, My gut reaction, I haven't really thought about that, but my gut reaction about why we compete is, is I mean, it does have to do with measurement. I mean, it is a way of measuring yourself against other people, how you, how you stack up against other people. Um, I, think, I think we do it because it, it gives us often a sense of progress. Um, if you're, for example, in, in my judo competition years, there'd be certain people that I'd compete against at every tournament and I could sort of measure my progress based on how well I did against those specific people. So it is, in a, in a strange sense, um, a, a way to measure. And then remind me what the second part
1: of your question was. Um, how does one measure individualistic athletic progress?
0: Yeah, that's interesting, too. I mean, I think it does have to do with um, you know measuring how you compare against other people, but I mean, in something like judo, there is still a lot of subjectivity. Um, it's not like you put a ball into a net and that's a goal. It's it's um, how you do depends on how the referee sort of says you're doing. Um, not to say it's completely subjective, but it's just it's slightly more subjective. Um, so that sort of complicates it. But I think, I mean, the, the most straightforward way you can measure it is just in record of wins and losses, but that doesn't really get at the context. And I think that's, that's what so much of measurement lacks is context, but it's also what so much of measurement demands to be meaningful. You can have numbers, but in a vacuum, they don't really mean anything. They, they don't really start telling a story until you understand the circumstances around them.
1: I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, because my next question is why do you think human beings try so hard to quantify everything?
0: I think we are just very generally speaking, um, sort of uncomfortable with uncertainty, and uncomfortable when things aren't categorized. I think measurement makes us feel like there's order in the world, and it it does sort of order the world. Um, I think it it helps us also just understand the world in common terms. Um, You can, if you say a person is so and such and such number of inches tall we all understand what that means, um, versus just comparing that person to some, something else that you've seen that's tougher because we might not have all seen that other thing. So it gives us this common language. Um, but I think, I really think what is driving it and at least what, what drives me to measure, despite knowing measurements, shortcomings is, is that it, it makes, it makes me feel more certain about things. It makes me understand Things In terms of other things. So, I mean, a measurement really is understanding one thing in terms of other, another thing, saying how tall I am is understanding my height in terms of this thing that we think of this thing we call the inch, which is um, sort of separate from me, it's, it's outside of me, and it therefore feels objective. So I think, yeah, it has to do, it it has to do with um, assigning value to things too. Um, I think we are comfortable when we can give something a number because it feels true and and it feels somehow truer than if we just, um, described something maybe in terms of feelings. I think the, the question then is whether, whether it is any more true, if you can measure something, does that make it more valid or does that just make it feel more valid?
1: Um, so speaking to that, uh, what are some things that you've noticed fall outside the realm of quantification? So things that are uh, sort of beyond measure, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I mean, more and more, I think there's less that that falls outside of that realm. But I think feelings are um, one example. But then again, there are plenty of scales for, for you know, rate how you feel from one to ten. Um, certain emotions that are supposed to quantify it. So I think, I mean, there's, there are on the one hand ways to measure almost everything, but then on the other hand, there are so many ways that these metrics fall short, but maybe, I mean, it is, it's hard to measure, um, the effects that, that art has on people, um, I mean what what can you really measure about um a, a great poem or a great painting? You can measure how it makes you feel, but does that really describe the the poem or the painting? Does that really tell you anything about it? I don't I don't think so, and I think that's sort of what's amazing about those media is that they can't be just contained in in numbers.
1: So what do you think about certain kinds of measurement that we Sort of. So you mentioned art as something that, you know, we interact with daily um, and the measurement or how we interpret art changes depending on who we are, depending on, you know, how we're feeling that day and so on and so forth. So how do you feel about certain kinds of measurement that have been um, kind of institutionalized, such as uh, like Tinder or online dating? Because one of your... Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, no, I was just going to say, I mean... I wrote about just that I wrote about online dating and how it like so much of measurement makes you feel like you're being productive. It takes this, um, what was until very recently unquantifiable realm of our lives. And it turns it into a game and it, it turns it into more than a game, almost work. Um, you can count how many on Tinder, you can count how many people you've profiles you've swiped through, you can count how many matches you've had. So it makes it feel all very almost faux scientific, but I think more than that, it makes it feel like you are making progress, even though, I mean, you, you're not really making progress. You're just sort of going through the motions and and um, and thinking that because it's being measured that you're doing the right thing. But there's there's so much ineffable to to dating, to falling in love, that it is, just can't be captured by something that in the end feels like a, a work productivity tool.
1: Can you speak more to the relationship between measurement and productivity? Because that, that is a theme that comes up um, across essays in the collection.
0: Yeah, I think I think that, that link between the two really interests me um, in terms of sort of the way that we work now, which is in this hyper-connected way of always being on email and always being able to count how many emails you've sent when you've sent them. I think what's interesting about measurement and productivity is not only that measurement makes us feel more productive, but that measurement is, in a sense, its own production. You are producing a measurement. And that can often feel like getting something done. If you have a number, you have something to show for it. Um, so as long as you can measure something, it it almost feels like you're producing something. And especially in, in our society that is so focused on consuming and this sort of, um, neoliberal way of taking in the world, I think the very, the very fact of producing a number of producing a measurement that almost feels like you're getting something done, like you're making progress. But really, I, I do wonder whether that is progress or if it's just a way to sort of Keep us within this mindset that we, what we do, must always be measurable because we have to always have something to show for it.
1: Right. So um, I wanted to ask you some questions about craft because, so this is a book that touches on so many interesting subjects, but it's also just beautifully written. Um, and so I noticed that the narrative voice, so the sort of view on the page in Beyond Measure. Is portrayed as she's observant, she's thoughtful, she's punctual, she's re- uh, ritualistic, she's disciplined, um, and perhaps above all, she's a little bit obsessive about things. Um, and so, as a writer, I was wondering to what extent do these traits drive the work that you do?
0: I I think probably a lot. I think the the punctuality, the the obsessiveness that sort of Need for things to be exact. I think that drives a lot of my writing, just even on the sentence level, in terms of needing, I and, and hoping that this comes across, but needing the words to be exactly the right words and in exactly the right order. I think in in some of the essays, I played with form a little bit. Um, in the essay about, um, I, wrote, I wrote an essay about. Uh, my daily commute and sort of um, takes the form of a diary or just little snippets from every day. Um, I wrote another essay in this book that's about taking naps and each um, sentence begins the same way with the phrase, I woke. And so I, I use these sort of formal constraints to to be just that, to constrain the writing, which then sort of opened it up. So I, I do find that those those traits that you mentioned, while they seem like they could be limiting, they They ultimately are somewhat freeing because when I found in, for example, the essay about naps where each um, sentence begins the same way because I'm limited by that, what the sentences actually say, I become less sort of overly focused on that, and they they just emerge because I have this constraint. so it's um yeah, it's it's almost funny that it works that way, but i I myself find just in my own writing that when I have a a formal rule dictating what I'm writing that the result is often, I'm more satisfied with the result.
1: Um, So this is a collection of essays. And so each one sort of follows its own logic in that way, depending on what constraints that you've sort of put on yourself and put on the work. Um, And I'm curious about that writing process. So what did telling this story or examining these ideas in the form of essays allow you to say, or allow you to do on the page um, that another form, such as a memoir, might not have allowed you to do.
0: I find that that with essays, you're allowed an uncertainty that a lot of other forms don't permit, um, which I guess in this case, in this, I'm writing about the search for certainty. It's kind of funny that I'm enjoying a form that very much relishes uncertainty and um, kind of constant questioning. But I find that so yeah, I find that in, in writing essays, um, you're allowed to meander in ways that other forms might not permit. And in that meandering, you can arrive somewhere completely different from where you started. And even when you're writing, not realize where you're going until you get there. And I think that the feeling of, of writing in a form that allows that is, is just really wonderful. And it, it not only, I think, um, makes for a compelling form, but also just makes the act of writing feel really great.
1: Um, So reading this collection, I also get the impression that you are a writer who takes particular joy in the process of research. Um, Can you speak a little bit to that? What kind of research you did for this collection? Yeah, I I do.
0: I do love research and in my day job, I'm a journalist, so I'm constantly reporting and researching Um, for this book I, I' the majority of research I did was just reading um, but then there was also a lot of talking to people talking to people at that sleep conference for for instance um, just trying to contextualize my own thoughts because in writing personal essays it's very easy and almost tempting to just go on what you already know because it it's a personal essay you can you can look within to sort of, to drive the narrative. But I find that when you bring in outside context and outside voices, outside research, that really helps um, inform the interiority of, of the essays and of, of the narrator's voice. Um, so yeah, I mean, but like I said, most of the research I did was just a, a ton of reading. And um, I mean, that process itself was really fun, because I got to read great essays, I got to learn things I never thought, I never even thought to think about. Um, For instance, I I wrote about the height of kitchen countertops, and how those were standardized. And that was just something I had no idea was even a thing that was considered. Um, So I think the the research behind the essays, like the writing itself, um, it was just really fun.
1: Yeah. And Actually, could you speak a little bit to that essay about um, what you discovered about the heights of countertops? Because that was a really interesting sort of turn towards the end of the collection. I noticed that there was a more um, sort of feminist bent to some of the research that you did.
0: Yeah, so I I started writing that essay. I can't remember why it occurred to me, but I had suddenly remembered that I had seen in some museum, a diagram, like an outline diagram of a woman's body with measurements, and then showed that outline in um, a kitchen from the early 1900s. So I remember that there was something about kitchens and their dimensions being based on women's bodies, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was. And um, I dug around and, and found some essays and some research that had been done about um, why kitchens today in in the US look the way they do. And a lot of it goes back to the standardization of the height of countertops, which sort of dictates the height of everything else in the kitchen. And the height of countertops was based on um, supposedly measurements of women's bodies and and whatever the average, quote, normal woman's body was, um, would dictate the height of the countertop. But um, it was sort of based on not quite a mistake, but just sort of a misreading of measurements. And um, so that basically resulted in the countertop heights we have today, which are, in fact, too high for most women. And um, I thought that was really interesting that, you know, we are all working in this space that's supposedly designed for women, but doesn't quite fit us. And does that is that freeing? Does that mean... We can sort of reject that women are quote, supposed to be in the kitchen still, um, or does that just mean that we're stuck in the space that we that we're that doesn't really fit us? And then on top of that, sort of complicating it for me and something I explored in that essay was the fact that I myself really like cooking and like spending time in the kitchen. and is that is that problematic because I'm putting myself in this space that's been, used to, um, to control women historically.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, so could you speak a little bit more to the ways that, uh, or this idea that measurement can sometimes fail us, especially if the average measurement or the agreed upon measurement doesn't match up with what most say in this example, women, but most people or most, uh, those who are using that service or that object need.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it fails us. I think when we stop paying attention to both where the measurement came from, and then also the, the context of the measurement is operating in. Um, There's something I can't remember which essay I mentioned this in, but there's um, something called the personal equation, which is um, this thing that astronomers used to use um, when measuring the, the transit of stars, the movement of stars So basically, when two people measure the same thing, um, the actual measurement they get might be slightly different depending on just, you know, which eye they're looking through the telescope with. Um, Similar to the way that um, if you're trying to throw or shoot an arrow at a target, you might keep you might think you're aiming towards the center, but the arrow keeps going to the right. So you learn to aim slightly to the left. So that's sort of a personal equation, this um, this sort of undefinable sense that you have to make a slight adjustment to actually get the accurate thing. So I think that sort of speaks to the way that measurement fails us because you know there are still people doing the measuring. Um, I think we often forget that, that there is still someone often measuring. even Even when our phones are measuring things, our phones are different if you if you go on a walk with someone you both look at your phone afterwards to get the distance that you've just walked it'll probably be different just because the way it's measuring your steps um and that that then gets at the fact that measurement in that sense is sort of grounded in the body and and because of that it can't ever be truly exact and if it were truly exact we're still using our bodies to to sense it and to take that information in and so it's still in the end relies on our own subjectivity.
1: So you're in, in telling me this, you're bringing up even more sort of sources of research in your essays. And, um, so I'm curious, what are some things that you researched and really enjoyed and thought were really fascinating, but had to leave out of the collection?
0: Um, there was a lot about sleep that I, um, that I was interested in, but that I just couldn't quite make work, um, trying to think what else I was, I was interested in the sort of more medical aspects of sleep. And while that stuff I found really fascinating, I just couldn't quite get it to fit in the book without being either repetitive or just sort of um, just dry for lack of a better word. Um, I wanted to write more about technology. Um, one thing I wrote a failed essay about was um, chatbots looking back at like way back when when AOL was around there was uh, a chatbot that you could ask like what time the next movie was Um, so I wanted to write about that and this weird experience of sort of growing up alongside chatbots as chatbots got better um, as the internet got better as I grew up and so I wanted to look at that evolution but I just could never quite figure out how that really fit with measurement. So I have a lot of these sort of spare essays that I'm still somewhat hopeful will go somewhere, but not really pressing. Yeah.
1: Well, maybe another collection. Yeah. Um, Okay. So this has been great. I just, I have one more question for you. Um, And that is, so what, what is it that you're hoping readers of beyond measure come away from the experience understanding or um, understanding better?
0: i hope I hope that it helps people understand or at least drives people to question the ways in which we rely on measurement for better and for worse, and just to question um, what we're actually doing with measurement when we're doing it. Um, that sort of that's my hope on a thematic level. I think on a more formal level i I would love for this book to Show what personal essays can do. I think there's been some backlash, maybe against personal essays, and I think personal essays are very capable vehicles for getting at some really complex ideas. And um, you know, just because they come from a place of subjectivity, just because they insist on the importance of the I, sometimes I think that doesn't make them any less valid. And in fact, I think it it shows that there are. There are voices that, that we need to listen to out there that um, just because the voice is foregrounding where it came from doesn't make it any less valid.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. My name is Zoe Bassier, and I'm a host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.